This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're back with a new episode every Thursday, so make sure you tap or click subscribe to stay up to date. Now, this week we're getting to know the story of a site and the man who unearthed it. Decades before Time Team turned its experts into much-loved celebrities, one archaeologist was making a name for himself through the new medium of television. That man was Sir Mortimer Wheeler, an archaeologist, celebrity, academic, author and war hero. Wheeler was also a pioneer of archaeological techniques that are still used today. He was also a somewhat controversial figure and led a rather extraordinary life, as we'll find out. But first, we're focusing on his dig at Stanick Iron Age Fort in North Yorkshire, which he carried out as part of the Festival of Britain in 1951. Joining me to discuss this are senior properties historian Susan Greeney and properties curator Mark Douglas. Uh, Mark, we've briefly described Sir Mortimer Wheeler. Can you tell us a bit more about his background? For example, where he was born and where he grew up. Wheeler was born in Glasgow, strange enough, in uh, 1890. He didn't stay there very long. His father took up a post at a newspaper in Bradford and the family moved to uh, down the area, in fact Salt Egg, outside of Bradford, when uh, Wheeler was some four years of age. From that point on, he did a strange sort of lifestyle, spending most of his time with his father, tramping the hillsides around the Bradford area and eventually attended Bradford Grammar School. He was there until 1905, um, when, he, when his father took another post to the same newspaper, but they had a London office, and the family moved to London. So he's sort of basically Glasgow, Bradford in his formative years, and then on, on to London before his university career took off. Strangely, he spent his, the next two years, his father decided that um, the best thing he could do with his son was not to, not to give him more formal education, but give him more of a kind of a, a relaxed and uh, a strangely bohemian type of approach to education, where he just basically gave him money every day and sent him off into central London so Wheeler could wander around the museums of, of London and the art galleries and basically formulate his, his approach to the rest his life. After two years, he went to college in London and he joined uh, the UCL and studied classics from when he graduated in 1907. Right. And from there on, it was uh, it was all systems go. So I was going to say to Susan then, uh, his interest in archaeology obviously stems from this time in London where he gets to travel around all the museums. Can you tell us a bit more about the development of that interest and how he became a professional archaeologist? As Mark said, he studied classics at university and when he was doing that, he went off for one summer and joined an excavation at Roxeter, the Roman site at Roxeter, which English Heritage now look after. And obviously this was quite an important event in his life because he was sort of hooked on archaeology really ever afterwards and particularly Roman archaeology. So when he finished his studies, he for a time took a studentship and, and did some research into Roman pottery. But then he took a job with the Royal Commission of Historic Monuments who were based in London. And he was sent out to draw and survey and record particularly medieval monuments for the Royal Commission's work, which was to create a big inventory of all of the historic monuments in England at that time. So he had that job for a couple of years, and actually that was interrupted by the First World War. 1914, outbreak of the war, 
Mortimer Wheeler decides to sign up for the armed forces and he quickly rose through ranks and training, initially being based in Britain, but then spending time abroad. And he was on the Western Front for many, many months. And he actually earned a military cross for his activities in a particularly daring rescue of some field guns. So the war really took him out of archaeology for quite some time and, and gave him a very strong military background, which would also be quite influential through the rest of his life. When he came back to England, he spent a little bit more time working for the Royal Commission, but was basically bored. He was quite an ambitious man. He wanted to carve out a career for himself in archaeology. And it was really between the wars that he started to conduct major excavations, mostly in the summer months, but sort of writing them up and doing all of the excavation analysis in the winter evenings. And his career was um, varied and very interesting. He went off to Wales, where he was Keeper of Archaeology at the National Museum of Wales and a lecturer. And during those years, he really excavated in Wales. He was particularly focused on Roman sites in Wales. And after that, he came back to London and was Keeper of the London Museum. And then he set up the Institute of Archaeology, which is now part of UCL in London. So he, he had this extraordinary kind of busy and demanding career. But every year he was heading out onto sites to excavate as well. So very much in the field, pushing the envelope and exploring and really pushing archaeology forward in the 20th century. That's right. He excavated these sites in Wales, particularly um, these Roman forts. Then he also went and excavated at St Albans at Verulanium, where he was particularly interested in the kind of Iron Age aspect of that site. He was looking for the Iron Age town, which he knew from classical sources and surviving coins had existed at St Albans. And after that, he went and dug at Maiden Castle, which I guess is perhaps his most famous excavations. He was really interested in that immediate pre-Roman Iron Age, when he was trying to sort of match up the classical sources that he'd studied at university with the archaeology that he could see on the ground. And it was at Maiden Castle, really, that he kind of, I guess, came to the kind of apex of his methodology, which is that he invented quite a lot of new ways of conducting archaeology. And he brought a kind of rigour and a sort of military precision to recording and setting out the trenches. And they would have a huge influence on the way that archaeology was done in this country. Very interesting parallel, really. The trenches there, you talk about, the, you know, you've got the trenches of the First World War and the trenches of archaeology. There's a lot of crossover between military techniques, so things like surveying and the skills that would be needed in archaeology. And he, in particular, he developed something which became known as the Wheeler Kenyon method, which Kathleen Kenyon was another archaeologist working at this time, which was to lay out a, a very precise grid of boxes across the site and excavate little mini box trenches so that you could record the stratigraphic relationships between different archaeological deposits. And this method was his way of bringing kind of scholarship and rigour and applying these techniques. And he was really looking back to archaeologists like General Pitt Rivers, who had established in the late 19th century ways of working that really carefully recorded the relationships between different deposits and carefully recorded where finds were found and the depths they were found at, which was quite a new thing. At the time, in the early 20th century, archaeology was a bit mixed. Some archaeologists were doing very good work, but others were basically sort of digging holes and sort of like digging potatoes, really. So he was bringing a kind of rigour to it that was was new and really influential. I suspect his military training was quite useful in in that regard, um, and also his academic rigour. Um, you've touched on some of the digs that he's done uh, before Stanick there. Were there other major digs, any of these also English heritage sites? As I said, Maiden Castle is really the one, I guess, that's most associated with Wheeler's work. He excavated there between 1934 and 1937. 
he also excavated at St Albans and parts of the Roman wall there are guardianship monuments, so are looked after by English Heritage as free sites. So those are two major sites that we look after now that he was investigating. And then, of course, Stanick was his last major excavation. But he also did amazing work abroad. So he was for many years head of the archaeological survey in India. He spent a lot of time in the Near East traveling around and advising on excavations. And even in the Second World War, when he was again signed up and in the military, he was really instrumental in heritage protection because he was campaigning for the British troops not to damage major and important monuments in places like Syria. Mm. So he had a lot of influence abroad as well, particularly in India and Pakistan. Let's move on to talk about his dig at Stanick Iron Age fortifications in North Yorkshire in 1951, post-war. What is Stanick? Why did he carry out a dig there? Let's bring Mark back in. Stanick itself is um, absolutely huge, one of the biggest prehistoric monuments in the country. It's a good Iron Age fort. It's more likely to be a, a very, very large defended and fortified settlement on a lowland setting, so it's not a hill fort as such, but it's six and a half kilometres in circumference with ramparts, several ramparts surrounding at least three sections of this, this six and a half kilometres of circumference, up to sort of five metres high in places with ditches and settlements and, and various other associated earthworks. Now, the thing that brings Wheeler to Stanick is this idea of the Festival of Britain. And the reason why Wheeler is chosen to do this excavation as part of the festival is because he's so famous by this time. So as Susan outlined his achievements between the First World War and the Second World and the end of the Second World War, they were immense. The man was absolutely everywhere. You read his biography, it's impossible to understand how one man could physically fit in everything he did in the interim period. So it's incredible. So by the time the, the study comes around, the Festival of Britain comes around, he is the, the go-to archaeologist in Britain. So the, to a little bit more about the festival, the festival was a Labour government initiative. It's, it's post-war Britain, there's um, a certain amount of austerity, you know, you know people are sort of basically coming out of that post-war feeling. And they decided at that point they would instigate this festival, which was a mirror in itself of the Great Exhibition of 1851, just 100 years later. And uh, the, the festival was designed to sort of showcase everything that was great about British technology, its architecture, its design. And it was mainly centred on the South Bank in London with also down at, uh, at Battersea there was a big fun fair and a big a big uh, park for the more sort of enjoyable entertainments of the, of the of the period but also it was it was sent around the country in the provinces there was even a ship that went around the country the HMS Campania a, a converted aircraft carrier I believe that was sent around the country to visit certain ports and as part of the festival they wanted to not only showcase the current achievements in, in, in Britain in Britain and its design and technology but also to, to outline the cultural depth of Britain as well and they turned to Wheeler to express this and the story goes that he was sat in his office in London when he was visited by the Chief Inspector of Ancient Monuments who said we want you to dig up a bit of Britain for us please if you wouldn't mind and Wheeler said yes I will it's what's the deal he said, well, you can dig anywhere you want, pick any site you want to do, and we'll pay for it, you know. And he, he immediately picked on Stanick. He'd never yeah. been there. He'd never seen it. I was, well, I was going to say, how did he know that it was there to start with? Because were there bits jutting out of the landscape that suggested there was an Iron Age settlement there at some point? How does one pick a site because normally with archaeology you sort of look at a field and you go well we'll do some geophys here you know yeah, yeah. and then we'll you know get our computer out and find out if there's something underneath and then we'll start digging with a jcb so how did he do it 
Well, as the story goes, Wheeler was interviewed on the BBC in 1974 with a, a series of programmes that were conducted by Magnus Magnuson, and it was called Sir Mortimer and Magnus. And in this, he gives us the outline of how this all came about, and he said it, it refers back to just before the start of the First, First World War, 1914, he was sat in his office talking to his, his colleague, a chap called Chapman, and Chapman described these series of earthworks, which were actually do jut out the ground quite a lot. These things are really visible on the ground, and suggested there was this potentially a amazing site in North York, this huge, huge Iron Age site. And Wheeler says in this interview that basically it was an inspiration just come to him that second as he was asked by uh, the Chief Inspector of Monuments in 1950 to choose a site for the, the Festival of Britain Dig. And he said that, you know, in his rather dramatic way, it certainly couldn't be in a flash. I told him an instance, Stanick was the place to be. And that was basically how he, he said it happened. I think more likely is that he knew full well there was something significant there but it never been it never been investigated before which is a remarkable for a site of such size okay just to say he was very interested in that immediate pre-roman iron age that's why he'd excavated at st albans that's why he'd excavate i mean that's part of the reason why he chose to dig at maiden castle so i think to give him the, the choice of anywhere in the country he was looking for somewhere that was occupied just at that point where the roman invasion was happening to see if he could find out more and to see if he could pinpoint the places where the individuals that he knew from the classical sources could be found in real life in the archaeology as it were so that was his research interest and i think the fact that the chief inspector was offering him unlimited amounts of money meant that he just thought wow this is a big site i can actually try and tackle this for the first time and mark said there susan that uh, stanick hadn't been excavated before yeah it hadn't been excavated before at least not by you know in modern archaeology standards in 1845 a very large hoard of iron age objects had been found nearby and this was quite a famous hoard it, it's probably a chariot burial so it's a hoard that has torques which are iron age neck rings and a, ha- a large number of horse harnesses and horse fittings so that did suggest that this was maybe a royal site and it had been traditionally identified as the centre of the Brigantes tribe which was the tribe which controlled the area across Yorkshire and Lancashire across a whole swathe of, of northern England at that time so I think it was kind of identified as this site everyone knew it was there it was, there was a lot of earthworks there and still are today visible and very obvious in the landscape but no one had actually tried to tackle excavating it before. Just to add, to, add further to the uh, the whole Wheeler interest in Stanick is the fact that up to that point, Stanick had been regarded as, yes, possibly an Iron Age settlement, an Iron Age fortification, an Iron Age monument, but there was some doubt in everybody's mind. And even the great book, The, the Victoria County Histories of, of North Yorkshire, suggests that it was a, a medieval deer park because it's called Stanick Park. So this sort of people had been put off this idea that there was anything more significant about Stanick by simply the fact that the received wisdom was this thing was a, a, a medieval deer park. And in fact, Morton Wheel himself, in his introduction to his, his excavations in 1950-51-52, suggests this was absolute nonsense, which of course it, obviously it was. But the other point about the Stanick dig wheeler and invariably he's, he's such close attention to the idea of military works is that stanick occupies a period in, in british history where the roman empire is basically ex- expanding through britain and 
he sees Stanek as a, as a critical point, that the, the last vestiges of the, well, we would say the British sort of native culture being taken over, being, being in kind of in, in Roman rule imposed upon it. And he, and he was very much a, all the way through his excavations, all the way through his writings, he, that, it's that interface that he's, he's interested in. So Stanek provides a, a really, really interesting point in that last gasp effort of the British culture to, to, to stay dependent. But of course, ultimately doomed to failure of the, uh, the over, overwhelming might of the Roman army. So it, like Susan mentioned, it was a very, very critical and, and very poignant uh, point in history for him. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's a very tantalising sort of moment if you imagine it at the time. Let's get into 1951 then, the Festival of Britain. Sir Mortimer Wheeler is up at Stanick in North Yorkshire. How many people does he have helping him and how big is his excavation? Like many of Wheeler's excavations, he had a whole team of people working with him. And actually, by this stage, he's in his 60s. He's probably mostly directing rather than digging himself. He worked on a system of usually using archaeological students. And he had a team of really experienced and sort of trusted supervisors, mostly women, who he worked with to open up the site and to direct the excavations. We also know that on the team at Stanick were some of his old friends. I mean, this was after a whole career in archaeology. So famous archaeologists like Leslie Alcock came and helped out and others who were kind of interested in the Iron Age you know would pop by and and join in the digging for a bit. In some ways I expect it was a sort of draw that Wheeler was doing yet another big Iron Age dig. The excavations lasted for 11 weeks and by the end of it Wheeler had kind of worked out a three-phase development of the defences. He opened up eight trenches. One was right in the middle of the site where there was the smallest and probably earliest enclosure. Two were across the defences of that site, and then two more were across the defences of a second enclosure, and two more trenches across the outermost or the third enclosure. So he was really tackling every aspect of the site. Most of these trenches were across the ditches and banks, the the defences. So we have a very clear picture as to what those defences looked like. He found that the ditches of the enclosures were five, six metres deep and dug right down into the limestone, into the rock. And this rock was often used it seems particularly on the outer defences to build a wall on top of the bank so creating a really substantial defence. What he found in the ditches wasn't a huge amount some bits of Iron Age pottery some bits of Roman pottery various bits of animal bones in the centre he did find the circular gullies and the post holes which showed where Iron Age roundhouses had once stood so he knew that it had been a settlement site and really he was kind of working out what the sequence of the site was what the relative sequence were and he was using pottery to do that so this is the days before radiocarbon dating was used really in archaeological sites and he was very much looking to see the quantities of Iron Age pottery the quantities of imported Roman pottery and working out the sequence of the site based on those collections. Right. Um, What did he discover relating to that pottery? Was it evidence of the two cultures mixing? Yes, in effect. So there's local pottery, locally made pottery and regionally imported goods. So there's things like salt containers, quern stones, various things that show a kind of it's a centre of regional economy. But there are also imported Roman objects. So these are things like Samian ware, bronze brooches, not huge quantities, but some small quantities of quite kind of exotic and highly made decorated pottery pieces. So he could tell that this was certainly a site. And by looking at the quantities of these different types of pots in each of the three ditches, that's how he came up with his 
sequence. He also found that the outermost defences, he, he targeted an entranceway, a gateway into the defences. And he found that actually the rock cut ditch had not been finished, although they dug down to the bottom of the ditch where the rock started enormous lumps of stone were still sitting in the ditch and he concluded that they hadn't actually finished that this final phase of the defenses had been suddenly stopped some alarm had meant that the inhabitants had dropped tools and he connected this to the roman invasion in effect to when the native tribes had to down tools and and flee in effect in in the face of the oncoming roman soldiers Mm. well speaking of soldiers uh, were there any evidence of weapons arrowheads or anything like this or there's a really interesting sequence found in one of the ditches where he found that it was waterlogged and so organic objects were preserved, which is quite unusual. And he found a very nice Iron Age sword complete in its wooden scabbard lying on the bottom of the ditch. And nearby was the head of a decapitated adult male who wow. poor chap had been, obviously, it was just his head, just the skull was found. He'd been cut across the throat he'd been decapitated and he had several very large sword wounds to his head so we surmise that this was probably a head of an enemy that had been stuck on a stake at the entrance to deter future attackers that area also had um, some very nicely preserved basketry and some wooden objects which perhaps less sign of the military aspect or just things that ended up in the ditch but it's amazing that they were preserved because they were waterlogged are there any other evidence of conflict between the romans and these indigenous britons No, not on this site. So he didn't excavate any cemetery areas or anything like that. So previously at Maiden Castle, Wheeler had excavated a large Iron Age uh, cemetery just within the entranceway to the hill fort. And he'd interpreted that cemetery as evidence of the people that were killed when the Roman invaders came. Much later on, that's been completely reinterpreted. We no longer think that that's the case. And we think that it was a typical Iron Age cemetery for the settlement that was there at the time. But in his mind, he was very much looking for that evidence of warfare and of the poor people being kind of cut down by the Roman invaders. But he didn't uncover that at Stanick. Yeah, that's an interesting bias that sort of creeps in, isn't it? If you want to tell a story, you may end up looking for evidence that confirms your hypothesis. Yes. Which I think... It's a human thing. We're all prone to that, aren't we? Is that the only evidence of human remains then at Stanick or are there others? Yes, I believe so. I don't think he excavated enormous areas of the interior of the enclosure or outside it. So he didn't uncover that evidence. It's typical of some of the criticism of Wheeler's approach that he was targeting things that he could use to further the history history of the site from its sources so he, he, to an extent he, he wasn't really that concerned with the domestic arrangements within static he was more interested in the the fortifications being a military man it seems to seems to be a thing that to sort of goes through his whole career about the idea of these targeted investigations to prove a point. And of course, when we say about the evidence, of course, what Wheeler's also trying to do at the same time, he's not only looking at the physical evidence in the ground, you know, this this idea of digging up people, which which is the one thing he's he coined quite a bit. He's also trying to relate what happens at Stanek to the source from Tacitus, who talks about the Roman invasion, talks about somewhere in north, the north of England and the various characters most importantly uh, Queen Catamandia who was uh, reputedly at Stanick at that sort of time and was an ally 
of the Romans, but of course was married to a husband who actually wasn't and who rebelled against the Roman occupation. So, so there's a whole sort of conflict within, within the, the historical sources that's trying to fit into the narrative what he's digging up. And I think that's what guides him along this path. I mean, the idea of what he discovered, he, he, he tends to suggest that the native peoples were slightly backward in a sense in terms of the basic civilization was going on and in the culture was going on in Britain at the time. And he described them as, as, as pastorists, sort of, you know, eking out an existence of, with cattle ranching and, you know, very much little else. Subsequent investigations into the site from Durham University have subsequently discovered that, you know, basically they weren't just pastoralists, they were agriculturists as well. So it's looking at the, the evidence in the round, all of the evidence you can possibly gather, and not just looking at individual pieces to fit into the story you want to create. And I suppose if you're only relying on certain sources, certain Roman sources like Tacitus, as you've mentioned, who may himself have been biased, um, A then, bit, yeah. then you're going to be looking for certain things, aren't you, I suppose? Yeah. yeah what was yeah. the other documentary evidence, that, source evidence in written form that he relied on? But nothing for this site, nothing at all. Right. As as aware. So he didn't have a huge amount of text to go on then in terms of the story. No, he's trying to fit the elements of the story into the into the landscape. So he, he wasn't far wrong. I mean, obviously, you know, this does tend to be a huge, gigantic site. It, it, is, it is a very impressive and a very important site at the time. But it had a longer stretch of history. Subsequently, being found out that, you know, some of his interpretations of dates were slightly askew. But he was fitting the dates into the events that he wanted to pick out. So the site was there much longer than he thought. And it probably lasted much longer afterwards than he said it was abandoned. So there's it's specifics. And, and it, this is archaeological long. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do so much. The thing about Wheeler and the thing about the idea of the excavation, the way these techniques, is that this stuff, it's, it was so meticulously done, regardless of his interpretation, the evidence is all still there. It wasn't sort of dug up, like Susan mentioned. I mean, Wheeler's great you know, criticism of archaeology in previous, when he started his, his, his excavation career, was that they were like digging potatoes. They would just run a site and dig up where they thought things might be, like almost tantamount to treasure hunting. Mm. What Wheeler did, he was so meticulous in his recording, we can go back and look at his excavations now and reinterpret them from the evidence. So it's it, an interpretation at the time can be right or wrong, but then there's no way it's fixed in time. It can be reinterpreted later on with other information, such as new techniques in dating. We, we can go back and look at that again, and that's what subsequently happened at, at Stanek. And of course, there was more emphasis placed on the on the settlement of the Tofts as well. Let's talk a bit more about the actual settlement there. I understand there is a thing called Wheeler's Wall. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Mark? It's just strange that this has come about as the idea of what Wheeler's Wall is, but basically what happened is that the Degat Stanek was a strange one. It wasn't a rescue excavation. It wasn't an important monument that was under threat that was taken into the, you know, the care of the government, as we call it, a guardianship monument. It was just a monument that was chosen by Wheeler on spec to go and dig. So the Ministry of Works provided the funds for him to go and dig, presumably got the permissions as well. One of the trenches he put across the, the defences, which is the most impressive part of the defences, the, these huge, huge ramparts that drop down to, a, to a, an outer ditch that, like Susan said, is, is actually goes beyond the underlying bedrock, and it's dug into the bedrock itself, and the bedrock was then taken and used to build a revetment wall on the very top, almost like a, a castellated wall on the top of the, of the rampart above. At the, at the time he was digging it, he was actually reconstructing and recreating a wall to show the extent of the defences, exactly what they looked like in the Iron Age. And this part of the defence was actually taken into guardianship by the state, so it's taken over by the state as a guardianship monument. And that's the little piece that where Mortimer's wall, Mortimer Wheeler's wall is now, is that one 
very very short stretch of the six and a six and a half kilometers of defenses actually not as much open to the public but certainly within public ownership and can be seen today by you know just part of the car and walking up on top of the ramparts and it's a very graphic illustration of what the whole thing would have looked like right how long and tall is that wheeler's wall the ditch is around about i would say 10 meters Right. Um, from the bottom of the ditch to the top of the wall is about 10 metres. The wall itself is basically perched on the very, very top of the rampart itself. Can you imagine the ditch and a rampart? The ditch itself inverted, so you've got a, a large bank. The wall itself on top there is about three metres high with a, a sort of a fighting platform on top. I mean, it must be, I think, about six, seven metres long. And some of this is his reconstruction of what he imagined it would have looked like is that correct yeah because he found the tumbled wall is actually in the bottom of the ditch when he excavated it the face of the bank going down the ditch at the very bottom of the ditch is a pile of stones which he interpreted quite rightly i assume that that's the broken up stone from the bottom of the ditch when they broke through into the underlying limestone broke this stone up and then built a wall on top so that wall has tumbled down the bank in the bottom of the ditch you know, over, over a period of time and that's what he used to reconstruct this sort this short section Susan, this approach of uh, rebuilding a bit of archaeology, would that be frowned upon these days? I think we might have slightly different approaches. Wheeler had actually, he had a lot of form in this from other sites that he'd excavated in Wales and also the Roman temple at Maiden Castle. He had reconstructed because Wheeler felt it was very important to show visitors and show the public what these sites looked like in the past actually our interpretation of Wheeler's wall at and the defences at Stanick have changed but the wall is still there as an indication of what the site looks like and it helps visitors understand the scale of the defences. It's not actually something we do as a matter of course nowadays but we still do do reconstructions if you think of for example the Neolithic houses that we've built at the Stonehenge Visitor Centre or other sites where we've used grass mowing or, or different ways of kind of showing the archaeology under the ground. It's something that we still try and do and in that way Wheeler was quite a pioneer of showing sites to the public and helping them understand. I suspect these days though as we see at Stonehenge with the Neolithic houses it's fine to sort of recreate something in a new place where there's no archaeology perhaps underneath but sort of building on top of the past is is, is not something that we'd really do these days is it? That's right. Yeah. Normally we would try and not exactly relocate on top of the place, although it has been done in the past. There's an amazing hill fort in Pembrokeshire in Wales called Castle Henley's, where they have recreated the Iron Age roundhouses where they stood. And it's a very effective way of presenting sites to the public. I think at Stanick, the good thing is that there are six kilometres of ramparts that have not been changed at all. So it's a very small part that's been reconstructed. I suppose we can forgive that then, that sort of exuberance and the willingness to sort of illustrate to the visitor. How important is Stanick then as an Iron Age site and in this period of transition as the Romans arrive into northern England? It's a really, really important site. It's not that well known. Many archaeologists don't necessarily know what Stanick is or where it is. And it's difficult to understand as a visitor because it's huge size. It's hard to get a grasp of it when you're actually on the ground, but it's probably one of the most important prehistoric sites in Yorkshire. And it's important because it has that link to that critical, pivotal moment in the history of the Roman invasion. And because it does have this most probable link to these literary sources. So the fact that Queen Cartamandia, it's probably her settlement, you know, it's probably her stronghold. So it's a really key part in the wider story of the Roman conquest of Britain. And that really difficult bit where there's people who are loyal to the Roman invaders and people who are very much in revolt and rebellion against the invaders. And that is interesting story 
itself. So it's a really important site. And it's we now think that the complex was not entirely defensive as Wheeler would have interpreted it, but that the enormous size of the defences were a symbol of the power and prestige and wealth of the Brigantes. So it's about how those people and that region were incredibly important in that late Iron Age period. And were those people indigenous to that settlement conquered by the Romans eventually? Or did they retain some independence? Eventually, yes. So in AD 70-71, the Roman army finally basically defeat the Brigantes and carry on up into Scotland and eventually build Hadrian's Wall and get to much further north. So yes, they are eventually subdued and come under the kind of Roman Empire. Right. So it's a very interesting chapter, even in the story of the advance into the further north of England and the building of Hadrian's Wall, really, this this place. Yeah, I mean, it's much earlier. So we're talking about the first century AD. Hadrian's Wall isn't commissioned until a couple of hundred years later. But yeah, it's a really important place of resistance and kind of conflict in that complicated period when the Romans are trying to take over Britain. In a postscript to the idea of the uh, the Brigantes being subdued by the Romans and the idea that this, there's this huge prehistoric settlement, there's a link, of course, with another English heritage monument at a place called Oldborough, which again is in Yorkshire, which becomes a huge Roman town, a really affluent, really prestigious and very much Roman-looking Romano-British town. So it's, a, it's a town of the Brigantes, but it is effectively a Roman town. So it's the conquering aspect is also the, the colonial aspect, which is the Brigantes are subsumed into the Roman culture. So they move from you know living in these huge Iron Age opida, a massive um, enclosure built with prestige, to yet another prestigious type of settlement, which is based on the Roman model, which is a very, very affluent and very prosperous Roman town about 25 miles south of Stanick. Well, if we fast forward through the centuries and we're back in the 1950s, we know that Sir Mortimer Wheeler was knighted in 1952 and made a sir. This was the year after his dig at Stanick as part of the Festival of Britain. He's obviously done a lot to get that title. What were his main achievements in the field of archaeology? We've talked a bit already about his methodologies, so the way that he used his box method and the focus that he put on stratigraphy and careful recording, particularly section drawing. Any archaeologist now is always trained in how to do section drawing and many of the techniques that Wheeler put in place and are now used as standard. And that's partly because he was so instrumental in training people. He knew that after the First World War that many young men of his age had died and he was aware that there was a complete dearth of people who were skilled archaeologists in Britain. And so he set about training lots of students and he set up the Institute of Archaeology in London to train a whole generation of archaeologists many of whom would go on to be archaeologists in their own right, to become lecturers and and professors. So he really understood the need for skilled specialist training in archaeological skills. The Institute of Archaeology is still happily running as part of UCL today and trains many archaeologists still. So he really was quite a major influence in the way that archaeology as a discipline developed and how excavation techniques developed. I guess his other achievements were his overseas work. We've touched very briefly on them, but he excavated and trained hundreds of archaeologists in India. You know, his views were not always what we would think of as being particularly benevolent towards the Indian people he was training and towards the kind of the local people he was working with. But he did 
kind of systemize and professionalize archaeology in India and managed to kind of get a whole handle on the whole prehistory and history of India through the work that he did there. So, yeah, it's difficult to understand quite how one man could have been so knowledgeable and skilled about so many different areas of archaeology, but he was. Mark, he held many job titles throughout his career. What were the main ones, if you can remember them? <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of job titles. I mean, you, you know, he was professor at uh, UCL. He was chair of uh, Society of Antiquaries. He was so busy, so many different things. Of course, like you said, many honours indeed. On top of all that, knighthoods and professorships. I think that that's the the main thing about Wheeler is that. He never shied away from the public eye. And I think this is another one of his, his, his achievements in terms of not so much these academic achievements, but he's certainly his achievement in bringing archaeological, archaeological thinking and archaeological information to the fore and making archaeology a subject that was interesting to everyone. And he was really interested in getting archaeological thought across to the local population. So, you know, before Wheeler, I assume that nobody really in England or in Britain knew about the British Iron Age, you know, the, the man in the street following Wheeler's excavations he popularised the idea of what British culture and British, the British past was all about. So much so that he would go beyond all measure to uh, involve newspapers in his excavations he, in some of his excavations were actually, actually sponsored by the Daily Mail and uh, he would give basically rights of access to the Times say for example at uh, I think it was at, at Maiden Castle. So he, he was courting publicity all the time mainly for the further understanding of archaeology, the public understanding of archaeology, but certainly, I think, for the uh, the curiosity he brought himself as well. That's why, by the time the static gig comes along in 1951, he's the most famous person in England in archaeological terms. You know, Everybody knows who he is. Mm. The man was a superstar. So he embodies archaeology, and he, yeah, yeah. he's a great way of obviously publicising it and communicating his passion. Unfortunately, though, he did have some other passions outside of archaeology, <laughs> I understand, which sort of take away from his noble exploits and um, pioneering efforts in this arena. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Susan? Well, we actually ought to mention Tessa Wheeler first, who was Mortimer's first wife. She was an archaeologist and was actually part of the Tessa Mortimer team, really, was um, instrumental in some of those major excavations we've been talking about. So she was heavily involved at St Albans in Verulamium. She was heavily involved at Maiden Castle. She was co-director of these excavations. And it was really Tessa that actually made these excavations work. She was the one working out all the logistics. She was the one looking after the students. She was the one giving the talks to the members of the public that arrived to see the site. And so she was really important in the first half of Mortimer Wheeler's life. Really sadly, she died very early in 1936 while the excavations at Maiden Castle were still ongoing and left Wheeler clearly devastated. I mean, it comes through very clearly in his autobiography that, you know, he was absolutely taken aback by Tessa's early death. However, he did have quite a reputation for being a bit of a womanizer, and he would go on to remarry several more times and have several notorious affairs. And it was sort of implied that he would he particularly promoted young women to be his supervisors because he liked to surround himself with young women on site. So by the standards of the 1950s, he was probably quite a typical professor in that way. But looking back at him today, we might judge him a bit differently. He also has some quite what would be seen as very offensive views today about some of the cultures that and some of the people that he encountered when he was on his travels in the Near East and in India. And some of the words that he used are quite shocking, although they have to be seen within the context of the 1950s when he was writing. Mm. It's one of those difficult things, isn't it? How does one judge someone from the past with 
the values of the present. But he he obviously has, I think we can probably agree, a complicated legacy. That's right. Yeah, I mean, he his that side of him is sort of slightly dominated. He's sort of nicknamed, you know, Naughty Morty. But actually, that rather overshadows the kind of extraordinary career that he had, and the huge influence that he had on archaeology, on the university archaeology, on training, and on excavation. And I think really we have to kind of look at him as a whole to understand what kind of character he was. I mean, his military background gave him, he was always right. He must have been quite an intimidating person to meet with his bristling moustache and his, I don't think he suffered fools gladly, um, but have been quite a, a dominating personality. But I think if you knew him and he, he could be very generous with his time and his expertise. So I, yeah, I think we have to judge him as a whole person rather than in any particular aspect. How do you sum him up, Mark? How should we remember Mortimer Wheeler? Yeah, it's it's easy in one way to look at the negative aspects, and I'm sure you know we shouldn't we shouldn't disregard them because I mean there's there's some really quite sort of very very negative aspects to to his personality. But of course we have to measure that against these achievements. The idea that I would say that would come back from from my point of view is the way that Wheeler tackled the world he tackled it at full tilt he didn't he didn't sort of hang around he like like susan said i don't think he suffered fools gladly but he couldn't afford to he was a man on a mission he's he packed in so much into his, his lifetime more than any of us could have ever dreamed of trying to do you know do it any one time and i think that his passion and his drive is one thing his passion his drive for archaeology and history is one thing and i think that needs to be sort of remembered and just offset by the fact that you know it's in some some aspects of his character were a bit unsavory and would you both agree that stanick iron age fort is one of his greatest achievements then Personally, I wouldn't say it was one of his greatest achievements. I think it was an achievement that reflected what he'd done up to that point in his lifetime. He was a man who could undertake Stanek because that's the man he was. It, it, it was more the fact that some of his great achievements, I mean, I think his, his work in India, I think, is some of his greatest work. And that the fact that you know, he, took, he had something like 2,700 sites to look after from various periods of history which he tried to sort of approach in a systematic manner without actually tending to go to one particular period and not training people in India, training, training the whole subcontinent in, the, in this new form of archaeology. I think that's a great achievement but I think his achievement at Stanek is the fact that he was the man who could do it and it was his, it was his character and his work and his approach that made him the man that could do that. Stanek would have remained probably unexcavated un- for a, a while longer if it hadn't been for Moro Wheeler. And lastly, for both of you, is the work at Stanick complete? Is the picture, the story of Stanick, finished as far as English heritage is concerned today? I think it's a site that would certainly repay further work. There was some more excavations that were done in the 1980s by Durham University, and they actually overturned quite a number of Wheeler's interpretations for the site. So we now have a much longer occupation period, and we have radiocarbon dating, for example, for the different phases of the site, and a slightly different interpretation of what was going on there. And that work was actually only published relatively recently. The main monograph of that excavation came out in 2016. So in fact, we only kind of now is are we in a stage where we can look back at that reassess that and potentially move forward with further investigations mark probably knows more than i do but i'm sure there must be more scope for things like geophysical survey earthwork survey sort of non-invasive techniques to help us understand the site and its landscape setting a little bit more but no i don't think we can ever say the story's finished on any of our sites no and i think perhaps we might have to wait till 2051 what do you think mark 
<laughs> I think 2051. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, don't hold your breath. Uh, Susan's absolutely correct. Stanek is so huge. There's so many unanswered questions about that site that, like anywhere else, work could go on there forevermore. And we, we, we'd eventually, hopefully, reach it at, at, at the full story. In terms of the English heritage involvement, of course, we have a very, very small section of this huge area, I an mean, absolutely huge area. I would say that at the moment, there's probably no plans, but what that doesn't stop us doing is going to look at Stanek and just marvel at the size of it. And the problem with Stanek is it's very low-lying. So once you go in there, you can, with the right eye, you can see these earthworks. You can see them on a map. You can work your way around them. What brings it to the fore is Wheeler's reconstruction and Wheeler's open ditch that was preserved from the 1951 or 52 dig by the Ministry of Works and which is now in the Garden of English Church. That lets you imagine, lets you form your mind's eye on what you would have seen in the past and it is truly a formidable site in that respect. So whether we go and find anything more about Stanek in its, in its real terms or whether you just enjoy the experience of being in such an impressive monument in such an, in a, an impressive time period, it's well worth the visit, it's well worth the look. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Coming up on next week's episode, we'll look at the animals that have played their part in the stories of English heritage sites through the ages. It was a young elephant and it was called Gwold and it was presented to the Queen on the front lawn, but it was soon sort of taken off the island and ended up in London Zoo. Thanks for listening. See you next time.